Podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. I was wondering here, before we started the show, whether Skype hates anybody, because our guest, Micah Hanks, was telling us that he was having a problem getting a Skype connection. And I thought for a second, could Skype be playing favorites? Hmm. But it is working now, right, Micah? I think it is, Gene. Yes, here we are back in the game for another round. Always good to be back with you guys. Uh, Whatever the medium we're using may be, let's just hope it behaves, huh? Well, I'm thinking it this way. It's going through multiple generations of reality. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's, It's like the movie Arrival, where this woman plays a linguist and she learns at E.T., communicates across time remember that yeah it was a fascinating concept that they presented in that film you know which really kind of stretches the mind in the sense of what would contact be like and i have to say we often are so fixated on what extraterrestrials or any other kind of intelligence we might encounter whether they are you know flesh and blood entities or something else we often fixate i think in science fiction on what they would look like But that film took it to a different level with enhancing, I think, the whole concept through linguistic ideas in terms of how would our minds respond to learning an alien language. In other words, having to essentially learn to think to an extent how another form of intelligence thinks and has evolved to think. So, yeah, it was kind of a different dimension on the contact experience and arguably one of the better films that's come out in recent years. I hope you guys liked it. I liked it. It is a bit of a mind twister. You have to figure out what they do. The only downside, I think, if E.T. is advanced enough to get here, they'd figure a way to talk to us without having to go through all this rigmarole. They might. You know, that's an interesting one, Gene, because in in a lot of the recent dialogue, which I'm sure you guys have followed like I have, there's been a lot of speculation about UFOs, or UAP as they are preferentially called these days, or as I like to jokingly say, the artists formerly known as UFOs. But of course, there's all this discussion about, well, what does this represent? Interestingly, there have been a lot of people recently who have kind of come into this. I think they're really longtime closet UFO believers or enthusiasts, but they stop as far as what they think it is. They merely say, we acknowledge there's a phenomena. And now that it's okay to say that, they've kind of come out and said, yeah, It's time we start taking this seriously. But leave all that little green men speculation, all those conspiracy theories about aliens. Leave that at the door. We're only talking about UAP here. Again, to me, it's funny because like you're talking about there, E.T. getting here and being able to communicate with us. I've also seen a lot of especially, you know, members of the popular science community, these being, you know, popular science educators, Neil deGrasse Tyson, what have you. And they've all basically said the same thing. You know, Seth Shostak also If E.T. were any part of this equation, and if they had gotten here, the idea that they would come here and not try to reach out, not try to communicate with us, just seems impossible. And so they use that, similar to what you're saying there, Gene, as an argument for why they don't think E.T. is a component related to the modern UFO issue. So I find it interesting the way that that argument is kind of appropriated for different ideologies and different ideological perspectives in the current UAP debate. Well, the thing you watch here is that why should E.T. contact us? Not saying they haven't already done so because people have said that. Why should they contact us? 
what motivation would they have? Because that represents an egocentric view on our part, that if we're being visited, the first thing they want to do is say hello. And if they did say hello, whom would they trust to impart their message to communicate? Would they talk to governments? Would they talk to Joe Simonton in some place in Wisconsin and want to give them some of their pancakes? I mean, what would they do? And at this point, I think before we get to step B, which is why are they not contacting us, assuming they're not, what are they and why are they here? What is here? What is the phenomenon? And then we can worry about that. Because exactly. we're at being asked to interpret what an alien mind might do. Just like we're talking about arrival, where their method of communication, the aliens, was very totally different from ours. And somehow they had to find a way to communicate, which is why this woman who was part of the whole picture was brought into play. The thing, of course, is they chose Lois Lane to be their point of communication. That's because Amy Adams played Lois Lane in the Snyderverse versions of Superman. But anyway, the point being here is I still think that if E.T. is smart enough to get here, communicating with us would be possible. They'd figure a way to do it. Number two, and this is the thing we don't talk about, they would protect themselves from our alien viruses. And that brings the War of the Worlds scenario. Movie in the novel War of the Worlds, how do we defeat E.T., which is super powerful? And the answer is we couldn't. But they fell victim to the common cold because they weren't smart enough to check for local microbes. Now, maybe when the book was written in the 1890s, this was not something that they'd consider. But now we assume they'd consider it. They look to see if there's any potential of infection for themselves. I don't know if they care about us or if they were smart enough, they would. They don't want us to be infected, nor do they want to be infected. So they take care of that. That would be the second thing. But we never talk about that. Right. Yeah, you can start to see when we have a conversation like this. It's a great tool, I think, for helping us, you know, play the what if game, you know, to create kind of at least layman's thought experiments where we can stretch our minds to new possibilities. And of course, if it's, uh, you know, a film going experience or even back in the days of radio or a book for that matter is going to, you know, give you a visual or an auditory kind of mind expanding, non hallucinatory experience where one can step outside of reality and have a speculative encounter with aliens. But we, we can't help but anthropomorphize any idea that a human mind generates about what E.T. might be like. And that's really the inherent problem with the whole science fiction approach toward guessing about what E.T. might be. And yet, as you mentioned, with films like Arrival, with, again, first books, then radio plays, and then films like War of the Worlds, these have inherently colored the way that we as people think about the idea of extraterrestrial life. You know, some astronomers who are far more on the skeptical side when it comes to the possible existence of alien life, I personally think it's out there. Most astrobiologists and astronomers seem to also, in terms of the vastness of the universe, it must be out there, they would say. But there are some who are like, life may be far more special. It could be that we are indeed alone. And if that were the case, I find that highly unlikely. But in that context, those extremely skeptical astronomers might further argue that, therefore, the whole idea of E.T. is a concept born out of the human mind, which is kind of strange to think about if you consider it from that perspective. I actually find that unlikely. But however you cut it, we tend to anthropomorphize our expectations about E.T. if it exists and what it would be like. 
Well, if they are here, we have to go back to the point of life in the universe. And more and more, we're saying more and more of these exoplanets we discover, more and more out there, have the conditions for life. And therefore, it's very likely some kind of life may have developed there. So what kind of life would it be? Well, if the building blocks that we see here are duplicated there, then probably something that would not be dissimilar to the kind of life forms we have here. Right. So at that point, at that point, we can say that maybe it's inevitable that something humanoid would be a practical way for life to develop. Of course, there could be lots of happy accidents along the way, as we assume we have here, that we're here because of those happy accidents or unhappy accidents, depending on your point of view. And therefore, it would be life that we would recognize as life. Right. Okay. We're going to recognize this. We have Micah Hanks joining us. He is with a publication called Debrief. All right which is a fascinating concept. They send out a newsletter every so often with their latest developments, so I keep track of it. Really worth checking out. We've got more to come with Gene and Randall and Micah. You're in. The Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Right now, millions of Americans have an uneasy feeling about the future. That's why they're quietly stockpiling as much emergency food as they can. What about you? Do you have enough emergency food to get you through a prolonged crisis? If not, take a moment to shop My Patriot Supply. We're America's leader in emergency preparedness and survival. Since 2008, we've served several million American families like yours. In fact, our mission is your survival. So head on over to MyPatriotSupply.com and grab a few of our tasty emergency food kits. Our food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage and is shipped quickly and discreetly to your door. One day, you might be eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner while everyone else is standing in a food line. Avoid that. It's too late to act once the other shoe drops. It's time to be self-reliant and prepared. And now you can. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com We've all seen and perhaps use the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Have you noticed how it dries your skin and as soon as the alcohol evaporates, it's no longer effective? 
GCNteam.com has alcohol-free antibacterial soap and foam meeting or exceeding all requirements set forth by the United States Food and Drug Administration. Come to GCNteam.com, keyword antibacterial, or call 877-878-4203. Stop aging now. Restore those joints. Boost your strength because it's official. Nutramedical has released the most exciting, powerful anti-aging supplement on the market. Dr. Bill Deagle's Red Deer Velvet DR has been approved by the U.S. Patent Office. Imagine stem cell rejuvenation all in one capsule without huge expense. Dr. Bill MD discovered that as an unborn baby grows in the mother's womb, he or she does not deteriorate or physically age. Red Deer Velvet DR, like the uterus, provides 300 biomolecules and six hormones protected in one special DR. DR capsule that delivers lipid packages directly into your circulation. This patented technology bypasses the stomach and is released into the small bowel unaltered by digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Remember, Red Deer Velvet DR. Improve endurance, stimulate your immune system, increase learning ability, and even improve sexual libido with Red Deer Velvet DR. Click NutriMedical.com. That's N-U-T-R-I Medical.com. Or call toll-free 888-212-8871 and get on the road to a newer, rejuvenated, happier you. A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. Six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our responsibility. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Micah Hanks is with us, and we're going one step beyond the Pentagon at UAP, formerly known as UFO, formerly known as Flying Saucer Task Force Report. I had to get Flying Saucer in there, Micah. (laughs) Right, inevitably. And we're talking about the possibility of alien life. And if alien life exists, what form would it take? Would it be like ours? Because the building blocks of life may be the same or similar. Would they communicate as we do or in ways that we can't even comprehend? And would they have their own COVID vaccines? to protect themselves from earthly viruses. Yeah, you know, you raised some really interesting points right there, Gene. And in the context of the current pandemic, which we all constantly hear about and people actually hope to have an escape from, so we won't dwell on it. But back to the point that some have raised about why would alien intelligence of any kind come all the way to Earth and then not make contact? I couldn't imagine a better explanation than COVID-19. And if we follow the whole logic of were the world's you know, that viruses might indeed be alien viruses at that, potentially deadly to organisms that are maybe not unlike us in terms of how they evolved and the same, you know, amino acids and building blocks, the simple proteins, which over time culminated in life on another world. If they came here from said world and are actually a lot more like us than we would expect, and they are just as potentially compromisable by uh, exposure to pathogens as humans are, maybe more so, then of course they're not going to try and come down, say hi, shake hands, and interact with us in the middle of a pandemic. Now, again, this is all 
speculation. But I would argue that really the, the premise there maybe is of some merit that if indeed we were to be visited at any time or if we are currently being visited, that is indeed still one option that's on the table with regard to UAP after all, it may not be so far-fetched that they would indeed keep a distance. Let me ask you something, Mike. I like Just to get the foundation here set for this conversation, I'm not sure I actually really know the answer yet. Do you believe that alien visitation is a physical reality? Or are you still one of the skeptics who are on the fence and, and you just don't know? Well, that's a good question, Randall. And by the way, let me say it's great to talk to both you guys. Always a pleasure to be here on the Paracast with you both. But as far as where I am on the likelihood of an extraterrestrial hypothesis as an explanation for UAP phenomena or UFOs, I personally, I kind of take the Kevin Randall approach. I like calling them UFOs still, and we can get into that, but you'll hear me preferentially you know, kind of go back and forth as needed and use UAP or UFOs. I've already done it plenty of times in this conversation. As far as the ET component on that, I am willing to hold that at arm's length until there is more definitive proof of that. But I also can sympathize to an extent with the long-held hopefuls who say, look, at this point, what better explanation is there? I would say that, again, there is some merit to the ET hypothesis and proponents of it who say this is simply the best explanation that we have at the current time, and it therefore perhaps is a useful model to work within in terms of trying to understand UAP. But I guess I gravitate a little more toward the notion that if we don't have clear, unequivocal evidence that points to an extraterrestrial source, we have to thereby be willing to consider other alternatives. That's pretty much where I am right now. And it's frustratingly vague for a lot of people. But let me just point out, often when you're trying to approach a subject you know, scientifically, which I do try to do as a layman with this subject and others that I'm interested in, uh, I think that it requires a certain bit of, yes – skepticism, but not in the sense of I have made up my mind what I think it is, and I'm going to make an argument and pick out facts that support what I believe, which unfortunately, I think those on the far end of the debunking side of skepticism today often do. There are plenty of really good skeptics out there. I count myself among them. I don't know if you'd call me a good one per se, but you know, in my opinion, a good skeptic is someone who withholds their judgment until they've got good evidence to support a conclusion. So I'm waiting for better evidence. I'm certainly analyzing the phenomena. I haven't made any definite conclusions, but I can understand the sympathies people have for the ET hypothesis in terms of a working model that helps us potentially explain UAP slash UFOs. When we start getting into more exotic conclusions, multiverse, time travelers, it's a more difficult concept to sell. And it's something like collective unconscious or the co-creation theory. That's so far out there that I don't think the average person, not because of intelligence or anything, is prepared or equipped to deal with it. But if you just say something's out there, it's doing things that we can't duplicate. And right now, the simplest thing would be ET, because that's the way our society is, is currently constituted. Right. I'll just take a moment here to touch on a couple of the other alternative hypotheses that you raised there. And Randall, I know that you'd also mentioned there was a lot to unpack. Maybe, that, maybe this will help with the unpacking process. Again, if we look back through time. And you guys know how I love history. Gene, I know you do, too, when it comes to this subject. And Gene, frankly, actually has been with this for so many years. He is, in my opinion, a part of the history of this subject, which is why it's so great to talk about this with you guys. But as far as the beginning of the so-called UFO phenomena as it emerged in America, 
when we go back to 1947, and I actually like the earlier than 1947 accounts, many of which describe UAP or UFOs very similar to how we would recognize them in the decades that followed. You know, maybe going back to 1943, 1942, and not just Foo Fighters. Some were seen here over, over the United States as well and other parts of the world. But when we began to culturally recognize UFOs after the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting and then the sightings that began to occur and appear in the American media shortly thereafter, once this phenomena emerged into the public consciousness and it was thereby recognized as a phenomena, proceeding forward from that point, it was a very short time before, of course, the U.S. Air Force became involved. Initially, everyone thinks, well, must be Soviet technology. Project Sign looks at it. Under the U.S. Air Force, their first operation to, you know, systematically look at this. And they come up with this famous estimate of the situation, which at least suggests we can't account for this as far as earthly technology goes. We have to be open to other possibilities. And so top brass in Washington, as everybody knows here, didn't like the insinuation that it might be extraterrestrial. But I bring that up to point out that that was really one of the first alternative, i.e. non-earthly hypotheses that was you know, really presented, really, I think, to any significant degree, and of course, within an official capacity with regard to what UFOs may be. But we'd already seen that insinuation in newspaper accounts from around that time, too. And people were making fun of Kenneth Arnold and saying that he saw Martians and all kinds of things. So the ET idea had already been in our culture, again, going back to sci-fi prior to Kenneth Arnold. And so when Kenneth Arnold says he sees flying saucers, people made fun of him, the doubters, and they'd already been making alien jokes at that time. And again, the ET hypothesis was further driven home by Donald Kehoe throughout the following decade, the 1950s, especially into the 1960s with the you know founding and the proliferation of NICAP as a civilian investigative committee. But then when we get to the 1960s and guys like Valet, who had already you know, really been working the ET angle for years with J.L. and Hynek and others, they start looking at it and saying, maybe we should take a different approach. And we see books like Passport to Magonia and others that really start to kind of, you know, again, I think Jerry Clark referred to that as being a fracture point in UFO ideology, where the ET proponents and then those who are taking a more metaphysical approach open to different possibilities. We see that kind of split begin right there. And, of course, there have been other ideas that are presented over the years like time travel, you know, ultra-dimensionals like John Keel talked about. But here's the thing. Coming back to your point, Gene. He's come back to our point, And we're to come back to these points. Then get back with Mike, Gene, and Randall. You're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. Are you afraid to go to the mailbox because of letter after letter from the IRS? Are they stacking on more and more penalties and interest? By now, you know the problem won't go away on its own. Don't let the IRS chase you to your grave with penalties and interest and liens and levies. You need real help now. I'm Dan Pilla. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I helped thousands of people solve tax problems they thought couldn't be solved. I can help you too. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com.
USA Radio News with Dan Naraki. Officials in Haiti say that hundreds are dead following a strong earthquake that struck the island on Saturday. The 7.2 magnitude quake was centered about 75 miles west of the capital of Port-au-Prince. Officials say at least 304 people have died and more than 1,800 have been injured, with Prime Minister Ariel Henry saying he was working to rush aid to areas devastated by the quake, as some towns had almost completely been razed. He also declared a month-long state of emergency for the entire country. And the number of children hospitalized with COVID-19 in the U.S. has reached a new record high, with just over 1,900 as of Saturday. Health officials blame the rapid spread of the Delta variant, along with children under 12 unable to receive a vaccination for the rise in serious cases. Children now make up about 2.5% of the total COVID patients in American hospitals. You're listening to USA Radio News. A pair of governors are talking about how they're handling rising COVID cases in their states. Wendy King reports. The governor of Oregon, Kate Brown, is calling up the National Guard to assist with putting up temporary hospitals due to the rapid spike of COVID-19. To support our hospitals overstretched by patients during the Delta surge. While the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, says he won't impose a mask mandate and won't push people to get vaccinated. There are risks associated with taking the vaccine. There are risks associated with not taking the vaccine. From the USA Radio News Pacific Northwest Bureau, I'm Wendy King. And as the remnants of what was Tropical Storm Fred move into the Gulf of Mexico, another tropical storm has formed in the eastern Caribbean Sea. Grace is expected to bring heavy rainfall to the greater and lesser Antilles with tropical storm warnings in effect for areas like Antigua and Barbuda, St. Kitts and Nevis, the U.S. and British Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. This is USA Radio News. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pau Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus doesn't grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system. And it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. A one-pound package of tea is $34.95 plus shipping. To order, please visit ShopSuperTea.com. That's Shop, S-H-O-P, Super, S-U-P-E-R, T-T-E-A, dot com. So the complete website is ShopSuperTea.com. Or call us at 818-984-6100, Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, California time. That's ShopSuperTea.com at 818-984-6100. Hi, this is Joshua P. Warren, author of The Poor Man's Paranormal, and you're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. After Micah Hanks finishes his explanation, I'm going to go back to my history and the experience with a friend of mine sitting at a hotel on New Year's Eve in the mid-60s And he had a copy in his hands of a book called The Incomplete Enchanter. Go ahead, Micah. Yeah, this is the real reason I like to come on the Paracast, because I hear so many great stories. And we get to hobnob, because you guys enjoy the history like I do. Back to that point, again, we kind of went on a short trip through time at all the different kind of theories. And there are others that we didn't touch on. Ray Palmer's Hollow Earth, Darrow's and Tarot's, all kinds of stuff like that. Really, I think, like you already outlined, Gene, some of those alternative hypotheses, you know, again, are far more 
seemingly impossible than the simple extraterrestrials getting in some kind of advanced craft and then traveling here. And this had really kind of been Stanton Friedman's argument and a number of others that this, however far out it may seem, is actually far more plausible then a lot of ideas that have been raised about UFOs, and again, with respect to Jacques Vallée, I've enjoyed his writing for years, but when we really look at what the whole Magonia idea represents in terms of ufology, a lot of people still aren't really sure, and I have to say I'm kind of one of them. What exactly are we talking about? You know, reviewers at the time, and again, ufologists who read his work were kind of like, you know, this is seemingly and intentionally and even frustratingly vague. What are we talking about? So, it seems natural to me that many would gravitate in terms of hypotheses toward ET because it's pretty simple and nuts and bolts. It's easier to comprehend, and frankly, it just seems more likely in the sum total of the possibilities that exist if we aren't going to presume that these are just phenomena from somewhere here on Earth. Well, let's get back to that alternate opinion. So Alan Greenfield is the guy who was with me, both teenagers Obviously, what do we do on New Year's Eve? Get drunk, go downstairs and go to Times Square and watch the big ball come down? No. He's talking about this book and he's saying, what if, and this would make it for instantaneous travel, UFOs came from other dimensions. And maybe that other dimension has different laws of physics. So in the novel Incomplete Enchanter by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, the other place that the protagonist went to, magic was enforced. That was the law. The laws of magic work there as opposed to our concepts of physics here. And then he came out with a publication called Alternate Horizons Newsletter to present this. At the same time, all this is happening. We have Jacques Vallée's opinions about UFOs modifying. We know that what we would call maybe a 4.5D or 3.5D or 5.5D explanation was being looked at by Dr. J. Allen Hynek in his final years. I interviewed him probably in the mid-70s or late-70s. And I wish I had the recording of the interview, but it is lost in the sands of time. Anyway, he had moved away from strict ET, but I don't think he ever got a chance to define that. Yeah, you know, when it comes to the idea that Heineck had wanted to move away. You know, there are some different, I guess, attitudes about that. Uh, I remember talking to Don Schmidt a few years ago, and he maintains that at the very end, Heineck had said something to him along the lines of, you know, I just can't imagine these things traveling from point A to point B. In other words, he, I think Don really wants to be of an opinion that Heineck had kind of come back around to the nuts and bolts idea. But we also know from Valet's writing, I think Alan Hynek had really been someone who was an open-minded person. He's received some pushback, you know, especially in articles that have appeared in some skeptic magazines. I don't see why it's necessarily something that we should take issue with, but he apparently early on had bought books like Manly P. Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages. He had had an interest in esotericism at an early age. But what does he do? He goes on to become a scientist. And he is an astronomer who is tasked with advising the U.S. Air Force. And what had he been in those early years? He had been, I mean, really, uh, by many standards, the arch skeptic. And so I think the real problem, not his early reading, you know, choice in reading material. I think the real problem people had with Heineck was that he didn't uphold what some view as those skeptical standards. He did become more open-minded as time went on. But, you know, again, I'm going to push back on the skeptical interpretation there and say that in my view, really, Heineck was a great skeptic in the sense that he looked at what appeared to be a phenomena, 
He was in a unique position. He and Valet, by the way, both were there at Northwestern back in the 60s, especially, where they had access to what Blue Book was collecting, at least a majority of what Blue Book was collecting on UFOs at the time. They had access to the data. They didn't ignore it. Heineck may have done that to an extent for a time, but over a period of several years, he became more and more convinced, look, I can't ignore this. There is a phenomenon here. You know, again, it's fascinating reading if you go back and look at uh, Valet's Forbidden Science journals that he published back in the 90s. And then, of course, Anomalist uh, books republished those a few years ago because even Valet early on was looking at this in terms of ET. He had been theorizing about, you know, how close Mars is at various times and and whether UFO visitations seem to spike in conjunction with the periods when Mars is closest to Earth. I mean, they were looking at this very much in terms of the possibility that these were ET visiting. Okay, Micah, hang on here. Like, like, all right. So we get quite a bit of this here, but let's. I'd like to back up just a little bit here now. We've got Hynek. You know the history of Hynek. If you're in ufology, you know how he started off as, as you call him, the arch skeptic. But what changed his view? was his personal involvement in the investigations and time after time after time not being able to explain them all and talking to people in person who he believed sincerely had a very unusual experience that simply could not be explained even though there should have been sufficient information to explain it. And he went on to, of course, write Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the UFO Experience, right? So when you see his work, there's no question that he believed that alien visitation was a reality. He didn't know where it came from. But, I mean, if someone like Heineck could be convinced, why are you still on the fence? Well, hold on now. Heineck again, let me let me back up to the, the previous point. Heineck had started as a skeptic, and looking at the data, he became convinced that there was something going on. Now, as we've already pointed out, he wavered, and this is the, the, the main point I was trying to make. He and Valet early on both looked at this in terms of flesh and blood, nuts and bolts, E.T. visiting Earth. And then they became open to other possibilities because they began to find that there were problems with explaining this strictly in terms of simple E.T. visitation. Okay, Now, in terms of me not being convinced – Let's be clear on what I'm not convinced about, okay? I'm not convinced that we have a single conclusive source that we have now identified and that we can attribute UFOs to. We are still trying to understand what it is. Valet and Heineck were both trying to do that too, which is, in my opinion, the very reason for the shifting opinions throughout their careers about what UFOs might be, what their source might be. So, you know, again, I'm not the skeptic who says I'm not convinced there is a phenomena. Just like Heineck, just like Valet, I am convinced that based on the plethora of data that's been collected, not just, by the way, stuff that's been collected in the last two years and analyzed by the UAP task force, not just stuff going back to 2004 and whatever happened with the Nimitz carrier group. No, I'm talking about the sum total of data that's been collected throughout time, even prior to 1947. I think that it is a good case that is presented that there is a phenomena. But again, like Heineck and like Valet, I'm not certain what it is. And therefore, that's where my skepticism is. But oh, I oh, okay. So now what we've got to do here is we've got to look at this and go, okay, so they've entered UAP, you know, the great muddying of the waters in terms of what we're actually talking about. <laughs> we had UFO, which was pretty bad itself. You know, <laughs> Valet called it, you know, the most treacherous word unidentified you know in that phrase but 
we know what it meant because of the way they defined it and the way that it is looked at in popular culture. And all of the evidence says, okay, when we're talking about a UFO, we're talking about some kind of an alien craft. We don't know for sure where it came from, but alien meaning from beyond the boundaries and constructs of our civilization. So it could be interstellar. It's probably not interplanetary, which is what the estimate of the situation. And these were the best engineers at the time concluded. So... Now we've, you know, enter UAP phenomenon. We have this phenomenon phenomenon to check out and then more to come with Micah, Gene, and Randall. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. SilverLungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at SilverLungs.com. That's SilverLungs.com. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right, we cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. It's been tough talking to my doctor about constipation with belly pain, discomfort, and bloating. I finally laid all my symptoms out there and how they keep coming back. She said I may have irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBSC. We agreed it's time to try something different. Linzess, or linaclotide, is a prescription medicine that treats IBSC in adults. Linzess works differently than laxatives. It lets you have more frequent and complete bowel movements and helps relieve overall abdominal symptoms, belly pain, discomfort, and bloating. These symptoms were studied in combination, not individually. Do not give Linzess to children less than six, and it should not be given to children six to less than 18. It may harm them. Do not take Linzess if you have a bowel blockage. Get immediate help if you develop unusual or severe stomach pain, especially with bloody or black stools. The most common side effect is diarrhea, sometimes severe. If it's severe, stop taking Linzess and call your doctor right away. Other side effects include gas, stomach area pain, and swelling. There could be more to your story with IBSC. Visit a doctor in person or online. Say yes to Linzess. Learn more at linzess.com or call 1-800-L-I-N-Z-E-S-S. 
Sponsored by Avian Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. This is Big the Merciless. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan. So Randall is busy telling Micah some things about different interpretations of what UFOs, UAPs mean. Go ahead. Right. So what we need to do is, and this is really a part of the problem in the field itself and the general public, is the difference between a phenomena versus an object. Because if you're just talking about phenomena, then it can be a whole range of other things besides craft or objects, right? So sure, when we're talking about UFO reports, there's a whole variety of phenomena that the subject in the UFO report might be besides a UFO or alien craft. Let's just do away with all of the rest when we're talking about UFOs. And like Stan Friedman said, he's, he said, let's just call them what they are. What we're really interested in are flying saucers. We're interested in alien craft, alien visitation. It's not like the rest isn't interesting. It is. It could be very scientifically interesting. But the question we want to know is, are we being visited by aliens from somewhere? Maybe they're interstellar. Maybe they're intergalactic. Maybe they're transuniversal. We're not sure. So let's just forget the rest and go, okay. These are really great points. And, you know, Randall, again, I'm really glad that you brought all that up because I'm with you. I, you know, I have some issues with all the different terms that have been used for uh, this phenomena or these objects. Like yourself, when we're talking about what might be alien craft technology, I am like you. I like the use of objects because, again, this goes maybe all the way back to Kant or even earlier than that, in fact. But philosophically, I can say that we are talking about the human perception of what we take to be a tangible manifestation in our environment. Exactly. Something that's objectively real, like object and an objective and objectively real, something that that radar waves bounce off of and has weight and exists like any other material that we're familiar with in the universe. Constructed a little differently, but that's what it is. Right. Yes, exactly. Now, you know, now there would be some modern scientists who would say, well, no, 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 no. We need to stick with UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, because we could be talking about a number of things. They would further probably point to the recent preliminary assessment by the UAP task force, and they would say, look, they broke it down into several categories of different things that might constitute UAP. But now, again, 
I think we're all on the same page here that the ones that interest us, I mean, I'm actually interested with, you know, like ball lightning. Gene's been down to Brown Mountain. I've been down there a few times. I think that those are interesting, but those are, let's make, make this very clear. Those don't appear to have anything to do with the kinds of technological objects of unknown provenance that we're talking about here. So, exactly. And, and you're with the debrief as well, which is a really good website. Like I go there and check things out when I want to see what kind of the latest thing is that you guys are coming up with. I go there and, and check it out and would encourage anyone else to do the same because you guys also get into military technology and our own technology, which is really advancing rapidly now and could be easily confused with the UFO. Yeah. Again, that's more the case now than ever before as our technology improves and thereby appears to maybe reach a point where it is in some ways some of our technologies maybe are now becoming similar to what people pilots, you know, and others military members, civilians whatever have observed now for decades. But now in my opinion something that is left out of a lot of the modern dialogue about all this is the history of this phenomena and how long people have seen it. And again, there I go using phenomena. As you can see, humans, I think, are going to inherently have a hard time grasping with what to call something when they don't know what it is exactly. Even our apparent conclusion, our provisional conclusion that these represent technologies and therefore they are objects, Again, I would say, but can we call them flying objects? That's part of the problem with the UFO thing. I'm not so sure that these things fly as we recognize flight. You know, it's more like they are UMOs, you know, unidentified moving objects. They can move through the air, but they can also move through water and go into the oceans. Or at least that's what many people report having observed them do. So, but UMO, I guess, doesn't roll off the tongue like UFO. So let's present a quick argument for why we should maybe just call them UFOs for the time being. A lot of people don't like UAP. They don't like reinventing the wheel. And I think you're right, Randall, to an extent that does muddy the waters because it seems to kind of widen the playing field. If anything, many want to see us narrow it a little bit, not draw premature conclusions. But let's. Oh, well, yeah, it gives them a major bunch of escape hatches to say, well, yeah. oh, well, it's weird, but it's not aliens. And so this is why when we use the term UFO in ufology, as ufologists, we can look back and we can go, well, the USAF created the term, and when you sift it all down, it doesn't leave any room for anything else but an alien craft. And then when you combine that with all of the cultural expectations of what the word carries, we, we don't have to take the words that make up the acronym literally. We can use the definition and just say, well, UFO is an alien craft, okay? It's not just some weird phenomena. It's some kind of thing transport device that is coming from we don't know where. Yes, precisely, exactly. And and that, again, I've seen Kevin Randall make kind of similar arguments. In my opinion, it might be better at this point so that within the field of ufology, we know what we're talking about. It might be better to actually just stick with UFO so that we have a clear idea in the historical sense of the usage of that term. I've called it an acronym, and people take issue with that. But again, let's remember remember that Rupelt said pronounce it UFO, so it effectively would be an acronym, not just an abbreviation. And I love that. Actually, I've been trying to tell myself to start using UFO as the term because it is a word it's not simply just an acronym it's kind of both and yeah. there's usage that goes along with it but these are nuances that you have to be in the field to really appreciate i agree people can say okay well radar 
what does that even mean, right? We can go with the the acronym, it's radio detection and ranging. Well, oh, well, you know, what does that mean? We're detecting radios out on the range? Well, that's not a radar, you know, and that's the same argument that the skeptics use to say that UFOs are simply just unidentified, right? It's so superficial, but people buy it because they don't know. Well, let me just point out one more thing, too. You have repeatedly said alien, seemingly preferential over ET, which I also like, and I'll tell you why, because, again, many people seem to misunderstand what we mean when we say alien. To say something is alien does not necessarily mean that it is extraterrestrial, i.e., a form of biological life from another world. Exactly. Alien simply means we don't recognize it. It is non-human in the context, again, of ufology. Please understand what we're saying. But again, Randall continuing to say alien, I think, is yet again another term, although it has its own baggage and stigmas. It maybe is one of the better potential descriptors when we're talking about this phenomena. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one, too. Well, I picked that straight out of biology. Basically, because when you're talking about an an alien species, you're talking about a reference to something originating from outside the environment in which it is found. Yes. Right? And so we're... That suits it. That doesn't say necessarily that it's interplanetary or interstellar. You know, the ETH is an umbrella term for a whole bunch of things. I think interstellar is probably the most reasonable of the alien explanations, But, you know, maybe like yourself, I can't say that for sure, but I can say for sure that we're being visited by aliens, right? (laughs) Well, you know, again, there is a strong possibility, at least I would say, and, and that seems like a likely conclusion to me. But again, now, the modern adherence of a UAP phenomena, many of them would differ. As we have seen in recent days, a lot of op eds appearing in, in magazines and online saying, you know, all of this alien conspiracy theorizing needs to stop. That's not what the UAP task force says they're looking at. They're looking at possible aerospace threats, and so therefore Russia or China. But guys, look, two quick points. Did you see what happened with the recent docking of a Russian spacecraft with the ISS and the calamity that ensued? Also, the uncontrolled reentry of a Chinese satellite in recent days. Both of these instances, NASA and other agencies have really, you know, kind of raised issues with these, uh, you know, with these countries and their spacecraft. Uh, And this is, of course, has caused some friction. But my point is, if they aren't capable of even controlling their aircraft, as well as those operated by the United States and its space program, do we really believe that they have technology that appears to be decades in advance of the best that we have? I just don't buy that. I don't. Yeah, I'm with you on that. What do you think, Gene? You know, I I kind of like to stay agnostic about final answers to UFOs. It makes me sound obscure and strange, but that's my middle name. Um, But seriously speaking, when I look at all this, I think we're still maybe going a step ahead of ourselves. And at that point, we find ourselves back in the old ufology, which is... Let's, you know, look for E.T. and let's look for all the other stuff. And that's where, of course, the Pentagon UAP task force is focused. You know, there's no evidence that E.T. is visiting us, but there's no evidence there isn't a presence of E.T. More to come with Gene Randall. And Micah, you're in the Paracast. (laughs) 
you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. For over 20 years, Extendivite has been helping people. Here is a testimonial from Amazon.com. Glad I found this product. I am 51 years old and started getting headaches a couple of times a week. I went to the doctor and my blood pressure was a little high at around 150 over 95. I found out about Extendivite and I ordered some to try it. Immediately, I felt better and it lowered my blood pressure and my headaches went away almost instant. I have been taking it now for about four months and I am so glad I found this product. You won't be disappointed. Extendivite is only $69.95 for a two-month supply. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-D-R-O-P.com. Extend your life with Extendivite. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. I like the agnostic position. You know, it keeps no me from- evidence. Come on, you know that's the thing. The skeptics just love to say there's no evidence, but there is a. To I'm talk not saying about. there's no evidence. The only <laughs> argument you would make here is what constitutes the evidence, which is the big thing about the Pentagon UAP Task Force report, which is they're talking about no evidence that there are spaceships. Well, what evidence are they looking for? Would it be a physical presence that they could touch and measure? In that case, what is Roswell? We don't know. Do they accept? Obviously, they're not accepting necessarily Roswell as a reality then. Because Roswell would mean we have physical evidence. What is the evidence? The problem with the report, of course, is there was nobody sitting there to talk to the press and answer questions. Here's the report. It's a progress report. Goodbye. Well, there are a lot of problems with the report. We can get into that in a moment. But, you know, Gene, something that you point out there in terms of this entire dialogue which is, again, kind of fascinating to me, is is looking at this report and imagining, I guess, the people who have written this report. I, I've done this myself. I would love there to have been a press conference where we could say, you know, have you guys you know, looked at Blue Book? Have you guys read supplementary information about this subject? Because let me tell you, 
as a layman, as an avocationalist and history nut, I'm not a historian, but I'm a guy who likes history and I and I advocate proper scholarly approaches to historical inquiry. How a historian would work is they would look at primary source material. And then they would, of course, look at secondary source material, and they will build their argument based on the most relevant data that that helps them essentially create a narrative with reliable source materials. That may not have been necessarily a, a historical inquiry, what the UAP task force was trying to do, but I think that it might have helped to phrase what they were looking at. Naturally, they want to look at the most recent data, the best instrumental information that's been collected in support of the reality of a phenomena. That seems to be what they did. But I worry that they are basically collecting a bunch of information without any kind of historical context that might help them frame that narrative. For instance, when we look at the recent report, they state that our data collection goes back to 2004. Well, first of all, what's very obvious about this is they're talking about the USS Nimitz incident and forward. But they further clarify for us that most of the data was collected within the last two years. We can also ascertain that most of the 144 cases that they outline in this preliminary assessment probably were gathered by the Navy because the U.S. Air Force didn't actually institute this formalized reporting mechanism until late last year. Paradoxically, the authors of the report also note that because of the historical or the recent history of the U.S. Air Force's involvement, again, they're talking about them adopting this reporting mechanism like last year, But I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking to myself, did anybody tell you about Project Blue Book? Did you know about it? This doesn't appear to have fallen within the purview of what this task force is looking at. Sorry, I have to just jump in on these. You know, they have just taken and not simply moved the goalposts. They have moved it all to a completely different playing field, as if the other one never existed. And Gene, you've pointed this out. We've talked about this with other guests on the show. We can go back to 1947 when they did one of their first preliminary assessments then, and they had then 1,593 cases they were looking at. You know, almost 1,600 cases then, back in the 40s. How many have they got in this report? 140-something? It's the focus. Yeah. Okay. The focus was much wider then. This is not a nationwide focus of 144. It is the naval sightings. Yeah, Yeah, well, okay, that's a fair comment, Gene. Yeah, I mean, if you're saying only military, but I mean... They didn't even say it was any other agencies. Right. But when we're talking about back in 47, I mean, they, they did include a lot of cases that were reported to them by the military, by pilots in the military. But they didn't limit it to the military, did they? No, no, they didn't. They included civilian. You're right. But then again, I mean, I mean, that's a good point that you make. But then it also shows how they're kind of arbitrarily leaving out. Well, the experience of now, I don't know how many millions of people who have actually seen these firsthand for themselves and already know that it's a reality. Like we don't, you know, for some of us out here, myself included, I'm not on the fence. Alien visitation is a reality for me and for a lot of other people, who, regardless of what the government tells us. Yeah, you know, one point I'll add right there, you know, to Gene's uh, observation about the fact that within the purview of what the UAP task force appears to currently be doing, and again, there at the debrief.org, we have talked pretty extensively since last December about all this and the developments and what level of involvement government has. Uh, Despite what we have as journalists tried to uncover about all that, 
Uh, there were some surprises in the report. Uh, for instance, the involvement of agencies like the FAA, which traditionally has said that they weren't involved, we now know. And in fact, actually, I've been following up on this, but uh, we now know based on what the report says that the FAA does collect information and pass that along to the UAP task force. Now, keeping in mind, that's a government agency that is providing data to the Navy's task force, but they are collecting information apparently on pilot observations corroborated by radar or other kind of sensory data uh, that, that can thereby provide a layer of confirmation to an anecdotal report. When those occur, apparently the FAA is now transporting or transferring that information to the UAP task force, which is, to my understanding, at least based on the FAA's own policy over the years, that's a new development because, as we know, for many, many years, they have essentially forwarded all UFO reports to either the, uh, the National UFO Reporting Center that Peter Davenport runs or – uh, for a time, it was the uh, Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Studies, and before that, the National Institute for Discovery Science, both Bigelow operations. Um, right, and and uh, let's not forget NARCAP is in there because they focus on pilot sightings and have very close connections with the, the agencies because of their focus on aviation safety. Well, yeah, now NARCAP, again, I, Ted Rowe, by the way, at NARCAP, that is an organization I wish more people would focus on. Uh, they're, in my opinion, one of the best organizations involved in UFO, not only data collection, but also raising public awareness about the importance of aviation safety in relation to UFO appearances. They've long used UAP preferentially, uh, preferentially also, uh, but I also think that Ted Rowe's one of the better analytical uh, reporters and, uh, and and well, analysts on UFOs. Uh, right now, who's, who's oh doing? yeah, well, like he and I had a big kind of argument about the UAP versus UFO, and in which I was, I you know, and we don't really want to go into that that much, but suffice it to say, I completely agree with you. I, yeah. I think NORCAP has done some excellent work, and uh, you know that we, if we just set aside the issue of the, you know, the UAP versus UFO and throwing the rest of the us ufologists under the bus in the process, their work is really great. <laughs> well, again, you know, the thing is, is that I think everyone to an extent is still grappling with the terminology in terms of how we orient ourselves linguistically with this phenomenon, which goes all the way back to our opening conversation about, you know, the science fiction component with all this. But again, I mentioned New Fork and Bigelow Enterprises because those are the specific ones outlined in the FAA's own orders uh, over the years that they've issued uh, in terms of what air traffic control operators, personnel, FAA personnel are supposed to do if a UFO report comes in, they have always tried to get that information to a civilian UFO organization rather than having to process it themselves. I spoke with John B. Alexander the other day on the telephone about this. You guys, of course, have talked with him over the years, and he had been instrumental in helping uh, or make that arrangement for Bigelow Aerospace because at the time the FAA – didn't want to have anything to do with this. And again, John reiterated just like last week, they still and many other government agencies don't want to have to have anything to do with UFOs. And so those were some of the surprises that I think we saw with the report was that agencies that traditionally, at least within the last two decades or so, that have been averse to having to have any involvement with UAP or UFOs, they have now apparently been at least performing some sort of supplemental role in support of the UAP task force. But how deep that goes and how long it'll last, who knows? Well, I kind of think that the original initiative with Senator Harry Reid 
was all partly an indulgence to his friend Bob Bigelow. More to come with Randall, Gene, and Micah. Why don't you do it this time, Micah? You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. America, do you want to win the spiritual war against the demons currently attacking our land? Step one comes from the Bible. Lay down the law by resting on the law and do your resting on our pillowcases printed with his Ten Commandments. Find them at ProjectPillowTalk.com. Don't sleep on this message. Go to ProjectPillowTalk.com or call us at 877-289-7439. When you call, ask to receive another powerful spiritual weapon, free, a CD packed with the secrets of forgiveness using all the instruments of praise written in the Bible, free with your order of our Ten Commandment pillowcases from ProjectPillowTalk.com. Shipping is free too, so call or click 877-289-7439 or ProjectPillowTalk.com. Get your Ten Commandment pillowcases for only $29.95 per set and watch the darkness flee from the light. Have you ever thought about turning your Glock, XD Family, or 1911 handgun into a semi-automatic carbine? It only takes about 30 seconds. The MacTech carbine upper is classified as an accessory and can be delivered right to your doorstep with no FFL or background check required. It's the world's most versatile pistol accessory. Build your custom upper today. Simply go to handgunconversion.com. That's handgunconversion.com. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veterans nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. 
Do the letters IRS give you anxiety? I'm Dan Pilla. I've defended people from the IRS for more than 40 years. My book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, created the tax resolution industry and is responsible for helping hundreds of thousands of people. It can help you, too. If you're a non-filer or facing IRS enforcement right now, your case is unique. You need real help, not cookie-cutter advice. My clients get my personal attention. Buy my book at danpilla.com and get a free consultation directly with me. That's danpilla.com. Let's start solving your tax problem right now. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. The distinguished dulcet tones of Micah Hanks present today on the Paracast. I don't know why I'm starting this routine. I was suggesting that the original $22 million study was very much a give back or give away to Robert Bigelow from his good buddy, Harry Reid. But Harry Reid, obviously, as we learn later, has been following UFOs for a long time. What's your perception, guys? Randall, you want to hit that one first? No, I think I'm going to let you go for that because I'm really not as into the, you know, the minutia of the politics as, as like both of you guys are very well versed in that and you're constantly following it actually go ahead micah what do you think about that i don't i don't count myself among those who wants to necessarily follow uh, the politics or as we might have said in years past the exopolitical component of all this i think there was a time you know where we had again guys like steve bassett and others you know who were lobbying and they felt that they needed to bring more politics into this you know we saw an element of that of course with stephen greer's work Robert Hastings, by the way, mentioning any of these names is not to be taken as an endorsement. Let me just put that out there. And actually, Robert Hastings, you know, I spoke to him a few years ago. And really, uh, as far as the names I've mentioned, I, I've always really appreciated Robert's work. I'm, I, I will add that because I think that the UFO nukes component is very important. But there was a time where, you know, there was this so-called exopolitics kind of community, a sub kind of division within ufology. Now it seems that the UAP UFO dialogue has moved almost exclusively over into government and politics with relation to its appearance in North America. You can't escape the fact that there are now government, you know, currently active government efforts to analyze and collect data on UAP. And of course, Prior to that, we knew that there were some uh, that were being operated out of the Pentagon for a time, unbeknownst to the public, until 2017 with the reporting by the New York Times. It's become very much a political thing. And so like yourself, Randall, you know, I, I think Gene's probably in, in the same boat. I'm more interested in the phenomena itself, not the he said, she said, here's who was involved, what have you. But it's part of it, and so we have to kind of analyze that too. Now, coming back to Gene's question about it being kind of a – you know, a sweetheart deal maybe for Bigelow, but then we learned that Harry Reid was interested. You know, it's obvious that Bigelow was looking for ways to fund his interest in studying UFOs, and there is maybe a certain altruism in that, but there's also, of course, some self-interest. I think a lot of people have either seen Bigelow as the best thing that ever happened to UFOs, and then others have tried to turn him into a James Bond villain. I think the guy's a human. He's a guy, just like any of us. Well, yeah. okay. Now, where I, where I might be able to comment relevantly on Bigelow, again, the reason that he is so interested in it is because he saw them. Well, he's <laughs> We've got this whole idea that there's no evidence because we have to completely dismiss people's firsthand experiences is just, to me, unfair and intellectually dishonest. 
Yeah, so let's talk about Bigelow for a moment as we're working our way out of this hole here. Uh, Bigelow, his grandparents apparently had a, a firsthand observation, and I think that he had some experiences himself. And it's obvious that, that those anecdotal instances drove his interest in the phenomena. Now, again, this has often been said. In a court of law, a person can be put away for life based on testimony alone, but that doesn't work in a laboratory. And although I understand and respect that, I think that you have to recognize that the UFO phenomena represents an unusual challenge to science in the sense that we can't just reach up, grab a flying saucer, and then put it into a laboratory and observe it and study it and create experiments around it. Now, that does not mean that science cannot be applied towards studying UAP. I actually spoke with Avi Loeb of Harvard University uh, yesterday on, the, on, the, on a Skype call. And, of course, he's launched this new Galileo project where he is aspiring to try and apply uh, science toward study of UAP and collect data. But, again, we have so much anecdotal information that's been collected. That drove Bob Bigelow's interest. And I think that in terms of understanding the challenge that UAP represents or UFOs, I'm sick of having to make that distinction. So let's just say UFOs. The challenge that they represent, I think, makes it incumbent upon us to look at the anecdotal data. And use that as at least some kind of a guide for what this phenomenon may represent. And, of course, the reality that it seems to represent in our you know, world. So, okay, okay, let's have a little bit closer of a look at that, too. So we don't get to do science about everything inside a lab. Uh, astronomy is, and skywatching and meteorology are three really good examples when – we observe a meteor shower, we see them, they are there, it's not a laboratory, they disappear, they burn up, occasionally we might find a remnant somewhere. But the point being is that the observational data from people who observe meteor showers is considered perfectly scientifically valid evidence. The only reason that the skeptics think that observational data from UFO sightings isn't valid evidence is because they have this notion that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But that is a subjective interpretation. If we want to be very objective, like science should be, we should be saying that all that is required is valid evidence, period, regardless right. of what it is. But they use this this kind of excuse of extraordinariness to eliminate it from the data set. Yeah, you know, all points taken. Now, briefly, uh, you know, on the subject of astronomy, let's just clear up a couple of things. You're absolutely right to point out that, you know, we're looking at things that are on entirely, if not different planets, in entirely different, you know, regions of space, maybe even outside our galaxy when we are looking through a telescope. But there is still nonetheless a degree of repeatability and consistency in the observational capacity that an astronomer has in terms of looking at, you know, stars, planets, and what have you. Now, not the same with meteors, right? But interestingly, although they are a widely recognized phenomena, a celestial phenomena, today, as recently as the late 19th century, that wasn't necessarily still the case. And we go even further back, and people would have considered it absurd for rocks to have fallen from the sky. Exactly. Despite the fact that, of course, telescopes did exist. Now, even more recently, just in the last few decades, reports, for instance, by observers on the ground of sounds simultaneously associated with the passage of meteors or meteorites through the sky – fireballs especially, extremely bright bolides. This was an anomalous phenomenon because people would say it brought my attention to the fact that there was a meteor. I heard it first, but 
Again, if we're talking about something that's several miles away, potentially, the sound's going to take several minutes, you know, at most, or at least maybe a few seconds to travel. And yet people were describing an immediate ability to hear something coinciding with these fireball observations. This is something William R. Corliss and the, a lot of the Fortean literature has looked at in recent years. But the point I'm raising is that even with a well-understood phenomena, sometimes there are things we can observe that we can't easily explain. And there are even some questions still about things like fireballs, which at one time, maybe as recently as a little more than a century ago, we still actually had doubts about. Now, that's a great corollary for the discussion about UFOs. They seem so outlandish to us right now. And they are so difficult to study in a laboratory, but like other areas of astronomy over the centuries, my belief is that as technology progresses, we're going to find UFOs more and more easy to study. And we will probably get to a point where it's not going to be so hard to provide a scientific perspective on them and actually to study them scientifically. In fact, maybe we're doing that now. Maybe we're getting to that point. Well, certainly the Pentagon UAP task force makes it easier for scientists to say, OK, I'm going to look at this. Because now it's okay. Now I'm not going to be considered a loon if I'm looking for a grant. We're going to grant this to people and then present Micah, Jean, and Randall. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. Are you curious about what might be missing from your diet and supplement choices? Take a free health assessment to identify your possible nutrient deficiencies. As a certified holistic health coach, I will help you assess and prioritize a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL-90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL-90. USA Radio News with Dan Naraki. President Biden has approved sending additional military forces to Kabul to help safely remove U.S. personnel from Afghanistan. In a statement Saturday, the president announced he was sending an additional 1,000 troops to the area, joining the 4,000 already announced. Biden also defended his decision to pull all troops out of the country, saying that the Afghan forces had to fight against a wave of Taliban fighters currently sweeping through the country. And for the fifth straight weekend, protesters took to the streets of France to push back against the country's health passes. Those passes began to be enforced this week, allowing a person to go to a restaurant, use public transportation, and other activities only if they were fully vaccinated, had recently tested negative for COVID, or have a natural immunity. The French government says the health passes were implemented as an incentive to get more people to get vaccinated. You're listening to USA Radio News. More on our top story now. Taliban fighters seized Afghanistan's fourth-largest city, Mazar-e-Sharif, Saturday and are now poised to move on Kabul. President Biden is ordering more U.S. troops to the capital to help in the evacuation of U.S. personnel from the country. 
Former U.S. envoy to the Middle East, Dennis Ross, says there's no way to frame American efforts in Afghanistan as a success. He tells Fox News that it's now clear that no amount of investment or training would have helped the Afghan army win. We've spent close to $100 billion in terms of investing in the Afghan military. Uh, they have quickly crumbled. There's no question about that. The Biden administration inherited from the Trump administration an agreement to pull out by May of this year. Had the Biden administration made the decision not to pull out at all, clearly the Taliban would have focused uh, their guns on us. Uh, We're facing a reality where we've been there 20 years. We could have stayed longer, but it's pretty clear no matter how long we stayed, no matter how much we invested in the Afghan military, pretty clear they were going to crumble. This is USA Radio News. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. And the IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. (laughs) I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes... Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. I'm interested in your conversation with Dr. Loeb. You know, yeah, Avi Loeb is an interesting guy to me. Uh, Let me first say that, of course, I really respect any scientist who, of course, is associated with a major American university, Harvard no less in this instance, who has now said, I want to start looking for UAP. When he and I caught up and talked, I even asked him about the Tic Tac, and he said that would be what we essentially qualify as the kind of UAP we're searching for. Now, of course, Avi also wrote a book called Extraterrestrial, where he puts forward the idea that he thinks it's very likely that Oumuamua, the mysterious interstellar visitor that passed through our little galactic neighborhood back in 2017, might have actually been a representation of alien technology. I do know that a lot of astronomers take issue with his assessment. And, and really, my biggest issue with that, which, you know, again, I have no problem telling Avi, and I think he would respect me raising this, this perspective. But again, we're really probably never going to be able to know what Oumuamua was. There are probably simpler explanations for what it is most likely to have been, but we'll never know because it came, it went, it's gone. I have to applaud Avi for saying, maybe for being inspired by the anomalous elements associated with Oumuamua. And whatever it was, whether or not we'll ever know, I think we can agree that there were some weird characteristics to that object. But that seems to have really inspired him. And with the ODNI report back in June, I mean, he read that and said, you know what? Scientists need to be looking at this. Now, people can think what they want to about obvious conclusions about Oumuamua. I say, put that aside. Let's look at the fact that a Harvard astronomer and a team of astronomers elsewhere around the country that he has assembled, they are seriously looking at this problem, taking it seriously, and trying to apply science toward it. I mean, I'm very excited about that, and I support his efforts. Definitely. Like, we're not just talking about, again, here, a UAP. 
Oumuamua was an object. There's no question about it. It wasn't just right. some vague thing that was up in the sky. Like, it was tracked for a, a long time. They, there was people that attempted to try to communicate with it, even. You know, right. uh, an interesting little side note on that. You know, one of the early names that they decided on possibly giving that object, they, they settled on Oumuamua because, of course, you know, the observatory there in Hawaii that spotted it. This is in the native Hawaiian language. Meaning essentially, you know, messenger or, you know, messenger from the stars, I believe, something along those right, lines. Yeah, yeah. One of the early names they thought about was Rama. Yeah, after Arthur C. Clarke's novel. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty cool novel. I think some, they've started to make it into a movie, but I don't know whatever happened to it. Yeah, but I mean, we could go down the list of the apparent weird, almost psychic predictions that Arthur C. Clarke has made over the years. I mean, that's a whole yeah. discussion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and to be fair, too, about Avi's observations and, and, the criticism he's got from other people, that criticism appears to me to only be based upon their bias, their personal bias and their cognitive dissonance about the existence of alien visitation or the pos- even the possibility of it. Because Avi's reasons were scientifically sound. Yes. They weren't just guesses. That object, for Reasons that we don't know for sure started to speed up on its way out of our solar system in a way that was not in keeping with the standard principles of celestial mechanics. So then they started coming up with ideas like, well, maybe it's the light from the sun pushing it. Well, you know, why wasn't this observed with a whole bunch of other objects? Well, this is a unique object. Maybe with some other objects, it might apply. But this was a heavy object with not a lot of surface area, and Avi himself and some other scientists with him did a bunch of calculations and determined that for that thing to have sped up because of the push from the sunlight, it would have had to have a solar sail like kilometers wide, right? And it didn't. There was no evidence that it did. So that's a scientist doing scientific calculations based on data that was measurable, that they got from a real object and, and it didn't fit. So then they said, oh, well, it must be like some kind of outgassing pouring out of the object because it was heated by the sun. So it's venting like a geyser and it's shooting it. And, and, and the more that you try to explain it and come up with these quasi what I would call pseudoscientific explanations, because they're just guessing. There's no reason to think that an object like a Muumuu, a solid rocky object would have any interior filled with any kind of moisture that could be heated by the sun and jetted out. And even if it did, the thing was spinning in a way that it would not have provided any meaningful propulsion in the direction out of our solar system. So again, that one fails, right? They cannot explain its behavior. Well, you know, again, I have to sympathize to an extent with Avi's conviction that this might have represented an actual form of technology uh, because, you know, I, I've gotten some pushback from people, you know, when I had him on my program the first time and you, I believe, I believe you guys spoke to him too. Did you not? Uh, we want to, you want to. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, Gene was saying we should get him on the show fairly. And I'm, I just don't know that there's two hours of conversation in, in there, but wow. uh, you know, what's your impression? Like is, I mean, he's a genuine scientist, uh, oh, yeah. you know, oh, could, yeah. he, could he, could he, yeah, in my opinion, I think, again, I, I've even gotten a little pushback from people who say, well, you know, you seem to really cater to his opinions about extraterrestrials. Again, this is where ideology comes into it, and I've had to clarify, I'm interested in any 
serious scientist who is trying to apply science toward understanding what these mysteries in our sky may represent. And I think that, uh, you know, again, I actually have a copy of Extraterrestrial. And in the book, and I recommend that people read it, even if you don't draw the same conclusion about Oumuamua, which, will again, we'll never know what it was, but if you don't draw the same conclusion that Dr. Loeb does, read what he has to say, especially as presented in that book about apparently what you know the scientific community seems to have, and he essentially outlines as an aversion to discussion about the possibility of alien technologies. The obvious simply saying, let's be open to that possibility, and let's recognize the bias in much of academia against that possibility. And it's fine if we want to present, you know, alternative hypotheses that may explain, you know, the mechanics of something like Oumuamua. But I think the more important point that he addresses in the book is the apparent bias against the proposition that alien technology could be detected. And although many who are also in that kind of space right now, in that sphere of research, are less inclined to believe that that's what Oumuamua represented, I think that they actually would agree with Avi in the sense that, as scientists, it is incumbent upon us to look for techno-signatures of alien technology. And many are. There are NASA-funded programs that are looking for them. You know, we've got Robbie Kaparapu, we've got uh, Jacob Hakmisra, we've got a lot of other, you know, actually, uh, I just spoke recently with an astronomer from uh, Arizona who also is, you know, Dr. Chris MP, very, very interested in UAP and thinks scientists should be studying it. All of that to say, by the way, and here's another point that I think should be driven home, the apparent result of the UAP task force's report that much of the UFO community was not very excited by, it does seem to have somewhat galvanized interest among scientists who are now saying, okay, yeah, let's turn our telescopes toward this, try to get to the bottom of this. I think that's maybe one of the better outcomes. Yes. Yeah. Gene, like we've been... uh Noticing that, like yourself, there's been a, a very significant opening up of the general public and the news media to the idea that alien visitation isn't something that should be just uh, in a laughed off as a joke on every news broadcast. Right. And if I hear one more person start their article or their newscast with, the truth is out there, or so said the X-Files, God, guys, really, come on, use some imagination, right? Yeah, and the X-Files. But, I mean, I, I loved the X-Files. I thought it was an excellent show. I was, And, yes, a lot of it was fiction, but if you were a fan of science fiction and ufology and the paranormal, and all that was was there was all kinds of little Easter eggs in there for you to go, oh, that reminds me of, you know, the Nellis Air Force Base incident where, you know, and, and so it just made it more fun to watch to me rather than to being too critical of it for being fictional. Oh, yeah. And again, my criticism isn't toward that program. It's the unimaginative journalists out there that think that they have to start every article about UFOs with, the truth may be out there. Yeah. (laughs) Your guys, your your knowledge of the UFO subject goes no deeper than having watched a few episodes of X-Files. That much is already obvious. (laughs) That's also kind of pathetic. More to come with Gene Randall and Micah, who is definitely never pathetic. Micah, it's your turn. You're in the Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. 
They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First game, Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. We are GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. We've got listeners, lots of them. Around the world, around the clock, our listeners do what listeners do. They listen. And you know what listeners got? Needs. Needs for your products, your services, and money to buy those needs. With our network of over 1,000 radio stations, streaming on the web, and our satellite transmissions, we're reaching our listeners with quality conservative programming. But there's something our listeners don't have. Your offer to meet their needs. Any business needs buyers. But if our listeners don't hear your message, they're still going to buy what they need. Just not from your business. So let's fix this. Tell us about your business. Then let our super creative department go to work to craft just the right message for our GCN listeners. Get started today with GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. Just shoot us an email, advertise at GCNlive.com. Now with orders to stay at home, public health concerns, the reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses, your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day. But supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at ImmuneSupportNow.com. That's ImmuneSupportNow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. 
This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. You know, it's just a matter of not using one's imagination. That's why so-called journalist after journalist will repeat the same cliche. This way they think by doing that, they're smart. Is that or maybe that they're protecting themselves because of this stigmatization that if they kind of, you know, introduce it and kind of shrug it off as, well, we don't have to take this too seriously. Like, don't look at me. I'm not a believer. I'm just reporting the news. Right. Maybe it's something to do with that. What do you think, Micah? You point out something, Randall, that has been a long tradition in journalism. I mean, I, you know, I'm a newspaper hound. I love going back through old newspapers and uh, whether it's physical copies that you find at you know thrift stores or it's, you know, newspapers dot com. The idea of the wink is an interesting phenomena, uh, especially if you've done like what uh, Thomas Bullard and others have done, you know, go back over all of the airship reports from the 1890s. A lot of historians who've looked at that aspect of all this have tried to understand, you know, which stories contain the wink. And what the wink is, is when a journalist is dropping an obvious reference to something that locals will recognize that will signify that the article is just a joke. You know, that is certainly something that you've seen throughout the years where a reporter will indicate in a lighthearted way that we're just kind of messing around and this report maybe shouldn't be taken entirely seriously. And in the modern context, you know, with all the concern about things like fake news and what have you, I think a lot of journalists now would be afraid to report on something that they didn't take seriously, but they may still, like in the case of UFOs, want to convey to those in the know that they don't take it seriously, even if they're reporting seriously on it. So again, like you say, Randall, it's kind of an escape for them. I had to report on UFOs because this was a story, but I don't want to be ridiculed. So please know I'm going to put some humor into it, right? (laughs) Well, it's an improvement anyway. At least now they can write a serious article with a couple of conditions and terms. Eventually, they won't have to do that anymore. Right, yeah. In the future, nobody will read anymore. Let's not get into that. (laughs) Okay, so let's just touch a little bit again, you know, going back to the the kinds of evidence that we were talking about. And and you are talking a lot about science, Micah. And I appreciate science, but one of the things that I think that we need to be very careful of in ufology is not to call it a science. Because it's not a science. It can never be a science. It's too wide a field for it to be classed as a science. And once we start calling ufology a science, then we open ourselves up to the criticism of the skeptics who will say, well, you're just a pseudoscience. And we hear them call ufology a pseudoscience, even though it doesn't fit the definition, because there is such a large cultural phenomenon to it. Most of ufology is a cultural phenomenon and a historical phenomenon. It's not something we study in a lab. Therefore, constantly trying to make it into something scientific, I think that can be risky in terms of inviting the skeptical sharks to attack. Yeah, all very good points. You know, here's the interesting thing about science and ufology. I'm very much a proponent of science being applied toward the UFO subject or whatever you want to call it. But I think that part of the problem is that there is no science of UFOs, right? Like you said, the term ufology is, I think, a term that has become recognized in past decades. And just like UFO, I would still advocate its use as far as it representing a person who looks at the subject of UFOs or maybe more broadly ufology being 
the study of UFOs, but I don't think that there can be said that there is a science of UFOs because there are, again, inherent limitations to how much science can be applied toward the study of UFOs. And it's a small amount of the overall field of ufology. Well, like I define it for use on our website, the USI site, as the array of subject matter and activities undertaken in the context of an interest in UFOs, particularly the investigation, study, and analysis of UFO reports. Right? Yeah. Okay? Because we've got festivals, we've got films, we've got books, we've got fiction, we've got art. I mean, how do you put that all into a lab and call it science? You can't. Therefore, it's not reasonable to say, well, ufology is a pseudoscience because there's an artist who drew a picture, right? That is not using critical thinking on the part of the skeptics. They need to back off from this. There's plenty of pseudoscience in medicine, lots of quacks, many that have been proven to be completely false, but we don't call medicine a pseudoscience because there are a whole bunch of quacks. In fact, there are more quacks in medicine than in ufology. I actually looked it up. <laughs> it's odd, but it's true. In medical practice, yeah, that's a valid phenomenon. And there are actually, again, skeptics who have pointed that out. And I actually think that it's important that that issue be raised. That's outside the scope of the conversation, but I'll just say this much about it. That is, to me, a far more concerning and pressing concern as far as issues go than worrying about who is claiming to apply science toward UFOs and failing to any degree. And again, what you were describing there, Randall, is the culture surrounding UFOs. In the absence of science being applied toward it, and also an acknowledgement of the limitations as far as how much science can be applied toward this ephemeral phenomena, I think that there has been, as a result, a culture built around it. And what we do see, and this is, I think, the cognitive dissonance that you were describing there, skeptics often criticize the UFO subculture and say that this is pseudoscience. And again, it's like saying, I'm going to go to a music festival and call them all pseudoscientists for not being <laughs> yeah. I'm going to call the band UFO a bunch of pseudoscientists. You know, I'm going to call the Foo Fighters pseudoscience. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. I mean, is it really it's absurd? By the way, did you know the name of the record label the Foo Fighters record on? No, what is that? Roswell. No. <laughs> what could be more awesome than that? I'd love to talk to Dave Grohl. I bet there's some UFO stuff going on. Come on. Yeah, they'd be fun. For you know, sure. he just hasn't been as vocal about it as Tom DeLong, apparently. Yeah. Tom who? You know, there's we, a whole other I mean, the last time anyone <laughs> even heard from Tom DeLong, he seems to be a phantasm. He's, He's on faded out or something. I'll tell you something about that. Uh, you know, I have a unique connection to Mr. DeLong in, in a roundabout way. Well, uh, you have my sympathy, sir. <laughs> Here, here's the story. Here's a real quick story because it's one for the road. My brother, I always wanted one for the road. Why am I interrupting? Go ahead, please. That's okay. No, no. My brother, Caleb, uh, who some fans of the Paracast may know uh, because, you know, Caleb occasionally will attend events with me and things where, where, where I'm talking about UFOs. Gene, one year that you and me and Caleb and a few others actually were all out there at the UFO Congress together, uh, you know, Caleb would come out there with me. But uh, Caleb, for a time, actually worked for the To The Stars Academy. Now, he didn't live out there in California or anything. He was right here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I reside. But he was working as an artist. When the, when the initial To The Stars Academy appeared online, you know, they were, they were basically a media site, and they were doing articles about UFOs and things, and Caleb was an illustrator. And he told me that, uh, you know, Tom DeLong actually called him for the quote-unquote interview for the job, and he was hired. But he actually spoke to Tom. 
which was kind of fun for Caleb because he always enjoyed Blink-182 growing up, you know, the band. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll admit with all fairness, I wasn't exactly a, a huge fan, but I thought it was very cool that Caleb actually got to talk to him. Now, uh, at some point, they basically let everyone go and said, you know, we're going to kind of take this company in a different direction. Didn't really tell everybody what direction that would be. So that's kind of where that ended. But then a few months later, the To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences manifest. And of course, Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon, all these guys were now a part of that. Uh, and it was a very different kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, in the in the pre-arts and science division of To The Stars, my brother for a time actually did work as an illustrator for Tom DeLonge. So there's my story. Okay, my only connection to a rock star was I had a brief conversation with Kirk Hammett of Metallica, which oh. was kind of embarrassing because I can't remember ever even listening to Metallica except that Kirk listens to the Paracast, which How is cool. cool. We're happy to have him listen to us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and Kirk, if you're out there, I'd love to talk to you sometime, too, because I'm a huge fan of Metallica, always have been. But, you know, as far as rock stars that you knew, Gene knew the late and very great Timothy Green Beckley. Yes, and I remember <laughs> how Jim Mosley would call him Timothy Greed Beckley. <laughs> Speaking of late people, yeah, it's kind of sad to see people I grew up with, literally. I mean, I knew Beckley when he was 13 years old and I was 15. And he went before I did. And that's really, really kind of sad. we got more to come. Nothing sad about it, but no, I'm, I, I won't break it. I should mention, though, in terms of being around, I, as some of our listeners know, will be undergoing some kind of heart stuff later this month and possibly in September. I still expect to be here. It's not open heart surgery, you know, where they, they carve open your chest and they put you on a heart and lung machine and all that good stuff and you spend weeks recovering from it. It's much less invasive. But when you get to be 5,000 years old as I am, you do have to do that. I mean, I've already had my eyes replaced. I've had cataract surgery. And now I see better than I did since I was 10 years old because I need no correction for anything, not even reading glasses. So maybe everybody should go out there and get their cataract surgeries done if your insurance will cover it. Gene, Micah, and Randall, I have no idea why I did this. You're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. 
Now with orders to stay at home. Public health concerns. The reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses. Your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day, but supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at immunesupportnow.com. That's immunesupportnow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So, you know, in a few years, I'll be bionic, folks, okay? I'll be like Metallo. That's the villain in Superman. You know, he's all metal and all that. Micah Hanks has joined us. I have no idea why we're talking about this. He will also be hanging out for after the Paracast because we roped him in. And he knows that if he says no, a hand will come through his computer display (laughs) and go right to his neck. Like in the cartoons. That did happen one time when I tried to say I couldn't do it. You know, this, I mean, it was incredible. It like defied physics. And that's why I now believe in UFOs because I've experienced the otherworldly, or at least that menacing hand reaching through the computer screen and saying, (laughs) you will, you will be a part of After the Paracast. That unfortunately is such a cliche. They even did it on the Supergirl TV show where they had a scene there where the computer nerd is trying to do something to help Supergirl, and then the hand from the villain comes in and grabs him by the neck. Didn't that all start with Poltergeist or something? You know, the TV screen with it suddenly blurbing out? They're here. Yeah, you know, with the little girl watching and the static on the TV screen. And Have either of you guys ever actually done that? Remember when you used to have over-the-air broadcasts and you could tune your channel to the static? Have you ever watched the static? It would have been many years ago if I had. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, I remember that as a kid because you had a situation yep. here where TV stations would actually go off the air, not just leave a test pattern at night, which yeah. some did. It'd go off the air, and then you'd get the static. So that has a sense of reality to it. So if then if you're going to do a horror movie or something and you attach something sinister to the static... That's almost kind of like the whole idea of the, you know, the electromagnetic magnetic detection, except REM pods don't have a screen or anything. But how about the rest of the world of the paranormal, Micah? In what capacity do you mean? Well, like, you know, like we're, you know, we talk about aliens, we talk about alien visitation in science, and, and it all tends to be related to that. But what about the idea of hauntings, uh, life after death? Uh, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, telepathy, that sort of thing. Is, do you have an interest in that stuff as well? You might say that I have an interest in all things that are, as Charles Fort would have said, 
part of the procession of the damned. All those things which are left out, the excluded, right, that he said shall march. Yeah, I am very much in that sense a Fortean. I love the work of uh, the uh, late American physicist William R. Corliss, who I actually mentioned earlier. And I have, you know, collected over the years those source books that he published where essentially what he does as a physicist, but with an interest in Fortiana, he goes back and he kind of collects information on a lot of the same sorts of things that Fort wrote about. And he puts together these incredible source books full of that kind of material, but sourced from scientific publications, which actually, in truth, Fort did that too. So I've, I've kind of always considered myself a science-minded Fortean, kind of like William R. Corliss. And even though through science and the accumulation of understanding and knowledge over time, we are able to look back on some of those mysteries from the past and we can explain them, I'm nonetheless very much an advocate like Fort and like Corliss of the study of anomalies because like, like Corliss used to say, anomalies do cause us to have to stretch our field in terms of the scope of reality that we're looking at and operating within, and it causes us to have to really rethink some fundamental forces of nature. Again, like what we talked about earlier with meteors, fireballs, what have you, that's a great example because people think of this as a very mundane phenomena today. But so little as 150 years ago, it was very mysterious. People didn't understand what meteors and meteorites actually were. They had no concept of rocks actually falling, an actual meteorite falling, making its way through the atmosphere and landing on the Earth. And anyone who proposed that would have called it, yet again, pseudoscience. Now, the problem is that in the sense of meteors, actual you know, objects that in some instances they can actually pass through our atmosphere and actually exit and go back out into space in some rare instances. But most, if they actually enter Earth's atmosphere, they're going to burn up as they're coming down. And so there is no actual residuum apart from the vapor trail that's left in the atmosphere, which may remain visible for some time. Because of that, and because of how rare the actual stones falling to Earth were, many viewed meteors as being some kind of an atmospheric phenomena. Well, actually, that's a really interesting point, because even today, right now, in the astronomical context, there's a meteorological context as well. But if if you actually look up what a, a meteor is considered to be in terms of its definition, the International Astronomy Union, the IAU, defines a meteor as the light and associated physical phenomena, heat, shock, ionization, which result from the high-speed entry of a solid object from space into a gaseous atmosphere. So the, the meteor is actually a phenomena, but its cause is an object. So now that kind of puts a, a bit of an interesting spin on this. If we're dealing with with phenomena that are caused by objects, then what is the cause of the UAP? Well, yeah. If it's not an object, what is it? But again, as I was pointing out earlier, even, I mean, with regard to meteors and the associated phenomena, that's, by the way, what you just pointed out, Randall, is very, very interesting. Yet again, we look at what most people think of when we hear a word like meteor, but the actual definition, according to astronomers who use it, they're describing also the associated phenomena, and some of that is still little understood. We have mechanisms for understanding the apparent coincidence of sounds with immediate observations of meteors, but again, we know that the way that sound travels should not allow for that. And so there are proposed mechanisms, a number of science papers that have appeared at least since the late 1970s, I believe, that have sought to explain that phenomena. But that's an example of something that remains 
at least somewhat partially unexplained about a well-known and established phenomena. But again, you know, then there's that semantic aspect of it too. So to me, it's kind of fascinating. And again, I will often refer to fireballs as being a good example of a phenomena that is a fairly recently understood phenomena, some aspects of which are still little understood and which we still have a lot of problems with in terms of how we refer to them and what we mean when we say the various different names for the different manifestations of that phenomena. It's a great corollary in a lot of ways for UAP. But now back to your earlier question, you know, the paranormal, for instance, does interest me, but there are certain areas that interest me more than others. And there are others that maybe I would even say I don't find very interesting because I just find them kind of unlikely. I did talk with Jim B. Tucker from the University of Virginia a while back, and you know he's done a lot of this research with past lives reported by children. Some of those cases are very interesting to me, not enough that I think I would devote my entire life to trying to resolve that question, uh, as he admirably has done and as Ian Stevenson did before him. But even Carl Sagan in The Demon Haunted World, uh, a book that I recommend everybody read, I think it's a fascinating read, even though he was much more on the skeptical side of things. One of the things that I took away from that book was Sagan actually saying, however dubious some of that past life phenomena may seem, he says, some of the cases are interesting enough that they warrant further examination. Now, before Stanton Friedman passed away, I recall talking with him about Sagan because, you know, they, of course, were in the same graduating class from Chicago University. And I asked him uh, one time, we were riding up through Riverside, California, and we stopped there for lunch one day. And I said to Stanton, I said, did you keep in touch with Carl Sagan later in life? He said, keep in touch? Of course, we went to the same school, you know? And I said, so you guys like stayed friends? He said, oh, yeah. And he said that Anne had arranged for Stanton, when he was giving one of his lectures to actually come by Carl's house, and they had like coffee cake and hung out and talked in the in the living room one afternoon. And Stan had kind of been like, Carl, you must understand that there's something to this, the, the UFOs. And that Carl essentially says, well, of course, I think there's probably something to it. But now the <laughs> problem is, if I give myself to that and I come out and I publicly discuss that, you know, there's funding, there is credibility, all these problems. And so, that, that you know, Sagan had essentially privately said to, to, to uh, Stanton, yeah, I'm interested in this phenomena, but I can't just go out there and publicly become an advocate for it like you are. But really, if again, if you read The Demon Haunted World, skeptical though he was, and, that, and, and as much as he towed that skeptical line, anybody who reads that book will immediately become aware of the fact that Sagan was very interested in UFOs, and he seemed to have maintained that interest throughout his career. Let's so continue with more of this on the other side with Gene Randall and Micah. You're in The Paracast. <laughs> Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s dot com 
It's about time for the 15th anniversary of Sunny Bay. And it may be our 15-year anniversary, but it's your chance at winning from weekly drawings in our contest for better health. We owe our success to you, GCN listeners. So as our thanks, you may win our grand prize, an Amazon gift card, plus Sunny Bay's complete set of superior pain relief products and services with a total prize value up to $4,152. How do you enter the Sunny Bay 15th anniversary contest for better health? Easy. Just click sunny-bay.com. No purchase necessary. Remember, there will be weekly drawings. Yes, it's our 15th anniversary, and it's your chance to win in Sunny Bay's 15th anniversary contest for better health. For complete contest rules and prize values, visit sunny-bay.com. That's sunny-bay.com. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. We have all seen and perhaps used the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Have you ever noticed how it dries your skin and as soon as the alcohol evaporates, it's no longer effective? With bacteria and virus problems, sanitizers and hand washing are the first line of defense against infectious disease. GCNteam.com has alcohol-free antibacterial soap and foam meeting or exceeding all requirements as set forth by the United States Food and Drug Administration as a first aid antiseptic. When it comes to sanitizers, it only makes sense that it lasts till the next application and doesn't dry and crack your skin, inviting infection. For long-lasting alcohol-free sanitizing, come to GCNteam.com keyword antibacterial. That's GCNteam.com, antibacterial, or call 877-878-4203. 877-878-4203. Anytime, anyplace, anywhere, radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. That was an interesting thing there because it certainly confirms things I heard about Sagan, that he was looking at his paycheck and the impact to his paycheck in taking the public point of view he did about UFOs. And we can see where the private man was certainly different. Now, by the way, I want to bring this up because it occurred to me as soon as we got into Ford Hinn and Charles Ford. And I was looking at Amazon. They offer a paperback version of the complete books of Charles Ford, all four books, for twenty four forty nine, But the hardcover version 
is 184.32, so we don't want to get into that. The question I have more to the point, as a confirmed 40 in yourself, and probably I'm in that category, does anyone know anymore who Charles Ford was? I mean, remember that we're talking about somebody whose last books were published around 100 years ago. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to think that it's been that long since he passed. Yeah, a lot of people do know who he was, but a lot also don't. And I'll I'll share a funny anecdote with you. I did a uh, blog post a while back that was something along the lines of like, here's a handful of mysterious Fortean disappearances that remain unexplained or something like that. And somebody had like commented on the article and they wrote 14 and put like a wink. (laughs) They literally thought I had just misspelled the word 14. They're like, dude, glaring typo. And I'm like, wow, people really don't know what Fortean means or where that expression comes from. But again, for anyone who still wonders about that, Charles Hoy Fort in the early part of the last century, he had actually been a a journalist. He had been kind of like a a travel writer, an outdoor writer, wrote a lot of both interesting and, and at times hilarious stuff. But at some point, you know, with the modest inheritance that he had, uh, you know, Fort ended up going and spending a lot of time at the New York Public Library. The one time I actually visited that library, Peter Robbins, of course, uh, you know, and I were hanging out in New York and he took me all around New York one day. And we actually visited where uh, Fort did a lot of his work. He also spent some time in London doing the same thing, painstakingly going through newspaper archives, publications like Scientific American and a number of others. Uh, you know, the journals of meteorological uh, society and what have you, and looking for anomalous occurrences. Interestingly, a lot of the occurrences that Fort actually wrote about, he harvested from scientific publications of his day. You know, again, he was an early progenitor, really, of, I mean, I've actually heard one of his biographers refers to him as the man who invented the paranormal. He isn't the man who invented it by any means, but he certainly is probably the most notable person in the 20th century and maybe throughout history who began to systematically look at it and try to categorize it in some way and to, you know, kind of create different groups. And I really think that Corliss, after him, did incredible work in terms of further breaking down into categories, looking at atmospheric phenomena, you know, looking at biological anomalies, you know, looking at the sun uh, and the solar system and, you know, phenomena that occurs in space. He's looking at a variety of different areas, and he was essentially trying to do more scientifically and in the different areas of the sciences what Fort had begun to do in the early part of the 20th century. Anyone who's interested in UFOs needs to know about who Charles Fort was because even as early as the Book of the Damned, his very first book that looked at anomalies, Fort was documenting aerial phenomena well in advance of 1947. And, you know, when you had Gordon Lohr and some of those guys who were associated with NICAP back in the 1950s and 60s, Gordon Lohr and others, when they, Denault also his co-author of the book Mysteries of the Skies, when they began to look back at the Fortean literature, they, of course, and others had begun to notice that Fort seems to have been documenting aerial phenomena. Yeah, he was documenting UFOs as we would recognize them today. So there also was the work over the years of Lohr and Gross who was an amateur historian, but again, you can read his self-published books online. I think, in fact, they've been made available probably at the Center for UFO uh, Studies website and also there at the um, Sign Oral History Project website. Just go on Google and search for those. You know, Lauren Gross, as far as a historian who looked at UFOs, amateur though he was, he did great work, and he was hyper-aware of the influence that Fort and the Fortean Society after Charles Ford what influence they had on early ufology. Anyone who says that the phenomenon began in 1947 hasn't read Charles Fort. Again, Fort was documenting aerial anomalies much earlier. 
if you're a student of ufology, you can find cases that go all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia if you want. I'd just like to back up a little bit and go back to the points you were making about meteors. This was a personal experience that I actually had. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this, but it's the Great Daylight Fireball of 1972. Because you had mentioned fireballs, Micah, uh, previously, and people reporting that they'd heard sounds associated with them. This is one that was recorded on film. It was captured by spaceborne detectors. And there was a, an eyewitness in Montana who says that they heard a double sonic boom as well. It was really like quite interesting to see because it was total daytime. And you could not miss this thing. And we watched it for several seconds until it went out of view. How fascinating. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one. But there was a similar instance in 1978, I believe, over Australia, where there was a massive fireball that was observed. And again, the strange you know, auditory phenomena associated with it. Uh, but I actually find a lot of these uh, you know, various kinds of meteorological phenomena very interesting. Uh, now, again, by, by definition, really, if we're talking about meteors, somebody's going to say, well, that's actually technically celestial phenomena – which is a little confusing because when we talk about weather, we say meteorological, but when we talk about meteors, we say celestial. Anyway, not to split hairs. Yeah, well, I mean, I, splitting hairs is our middle name here. <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it right. <laughs> well, you know what? We use a very big scissor. We don't just split hairs. We do it very carefully. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'll tell you something that I hear you guys only very seldom talk about on this program, and I've got to go there. Sasquatch. I think you guys had Jeffrey Meldrum on some time ago, Gene. But apart from the UFO question, again, Sasquatch is something, the possible biological reality of what Jeffrey Meldrum would, would, would term a relict hominid, or I'm sorry, relict hominoid. That's how he prefers to say it. Uh, that fascinates me. And again, I see a lot of corollaries with ufology. No, I do not associate those two phenomena, with all respect to Stan Gordon and some others who have you know written about that angle over the years. But again, if so many people have claimed to have seen this purported creature and they are all myths or hoaxes or misperceptions or what have you, again, the true anomaly to me is in human perception and trying to understand human psychology rather than the purported existence of the creature. Because again, there is so much data and so much consistency in the reports uh, that to me, I find it hard not to think that there is at least something to the idea of this this animal, which Meldrum and others, of course, are scientific proponents of its existence. Okay, let's let's okay. Now let's back up a little bit with this and tie this together with the previous element of our conversation. Was that, and that is the connection between UFOs, alien visitation, and other paranormal types of events. Now you were just saying that you seem to, or it sounded to me that you have a resistance to making any connection between. Bigfoot or Sasquatch and alien visitation. Uh, but there are all kinds of other phenomena as well. And when we were talking about Charles Fort, the, the connections are inescapable because they just always seem to go together or at least have high correlation. Let's do a break here. We've got more to correlate with Gene, Randall, and Micah. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamel Bookaboo from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Longevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale, or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to TeamGaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's TeamGaday.com with Longevity. TeamGaday.com. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. USA Radio News. I'm Brad Bernards. A powerful earthquake struck Haiti on Saturday morning, killing at least 304 people and leaving hundreds of others hurt, authorities said. The 7.2 magnitude quake was strong enough to be felt in neighboring countries. Haitian officials said more than 1,800 people were injured in the disaster, some of whom were being treated in hospitals in the three most affected communities. The epicenter of the quake was about 78 miles west of the capital, Port-au-Prince. The nation's inflation is growing because President Joe Biden is blocking the production of goods and services at a time when demand is at an all-time high following lockdowns due to the COVID pandemic, former presidential advisor and Newsmax show host Dick Morris said Saturday. So you're limiting supply, you're swelling the demand, and of course you're going to get this crazy inflation. This is USA Radio News. New York Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, a former congresswoman, has mostly labored in obscurity under Governor Cuomo, but as the New York's first female governor, she will almost certainly face a bruising primary battle in 2022. She does intend to run. I fully expect to. I'm prepared for this. I've led a life working in every level of government, from Congress to local government. I am the most prepared person to assume this responsibility, and and I'm going to ask the voters at some point for their faith in me again, but right now, I I need their faith, I need their prayers, and I need their support to make sure we get this right. President Joe Biden announced Saturday that he is deploying more troops to Afghanistan to ensure that U.S. personnel can be evacuated safely. The Biden administration will brief House members on Afghanistan virtually Sunday morning and will be over unclassified material, according to reports. An in-person classified briefing on the situation will reportedly be held next week. This is USA Radio News. Oh, whale! Guys, whale! Wow, whale! Oh, that's a big whale. Um, okay. Whale, whale, whale! Oh no! Whale! Tides can turn quick on the water. Progressive's boat insurance has you covered. Get a quote today in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. At least it wasn't a shark, am I right? (laughs) Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Angie's List is now Angie. Summer is the perfect time to book your next home project. From lawn care to a new patio, Angie makes it simple to connect with pros who can get the job done right. See reviews, upfront pricing, and instantly book hundreds of projects. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, we'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with our happiness guarantee. Check out Angie.com and for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm.
Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Okay, Randall, proceed with the conversation. Right. Yeah. So I was just saying before the break that we've interviewed a lot of people now, and I've been taking kind of an informal poll of their experiences in their investigations into the paranormal. And these are people who are not necessarily ufologists or even all that interested in UFOs. But it turns out that there is a very high correlation between other kinds of paranormal phenomena and UFO sightings in terms of their location and frequency and pretty much all the rest. So why why would you be resistant to the idea that maybe our alien visitors have something to do with this? Maybe they're pets, Randall. Maybe they are the pets. <laughs> I, I don't mean to sound flippant. You know, I mean, no, but you did a pretty good Sagan impression back there too, by the way. So yeah, I don't mind a little humor. I I, think I don't fun. either. We need more of it. And that's the whole thing. I mean, I'm a person who takes himself, well, I don't take myself very seriously, but I take these subjects very seriously. I mean, I am serious as a heart attack when I am, you know, in my journalistic mindset and I'm there at the debrief and I'm writing a a breakdown where I've been hounding, a, you know, a government agency for three weeks trying to get a statement. You know, I've just gotten a FOIA release. You know, I've gone and interviewed experts on the field and I'm putting together an article. I mean, yeah, that's at me at my most serious. But there has to be a balance where you're also entertaining humor, too. And uh, I'd been corresponding with Diana Pasulka the other day, you know, author of American Cosmic. And she had written to me and said, you know, uh, it's something I appreciate about you, Mike, is that you, you've you never lost that sense of humor that you have about things. So, but um as far as Sasquatch and a possible connection with UFOs or any kind of interrelationship between these various different kinds of phenomena, again, I always fall back on this one. The old adage, and actually it's really, I think, a, a fundamental tenet of science and the scientific method, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. There are a lot of different things that may appear to be correlated, but that doesn't mean that there's an actual direct association between them. And so when it comes to Sasquatch and UFOs, I have to say that there are a variety of ways that we could see an apparent connection between them. But the question we have to ask is, are those things truly related? Sure. You know, and I've heard that same adage as well. But I think that we'd have to we'd have to recognize that the higher the correlation, the more likely it is that it is a causal factor. People will do this with consciousness all the time. They'll say, well, just because consciousness is associated with the functioning brain doesn't mean that the functioning brain is causal of consciousness. And I kind of go, look, that's really stretching that whole concept a lot because to my knowledge, there is really no good evidence that somebody who's brain dead has any consciousness whatsoever. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but we can't just use it to say, well, just because causation doesn't equal correlation and correlation doesn't equal causation, that there's not a connection either. Because statistically speaking, there is. The more often that you do an experiment and it turns out the same way every single time, the more reasonable it becomes to assume that it is causal. Fair point. Now, let me throw that back at you. Now, while we could talk all day about the possible connections, and again, I'll, I'll you know entertain that point that there may indeed be some connections. Yet again, like we were discussing with the extraterrestrial hypothesis and why people are proponents of it, you know, I 
myself have certain sympathies for that hypothesis, but like Gene, I stopped short of endorsing it and saying I think that that's something because I don't like to necessarily draw conclusions if I don't have enough evidence. But I'll entertain a hypothesis all day. Now, similarly with Sasquatch, my preferential hypothesis, we might say, would be that, well, we should look at this in terms of the scope of biology before we go to extraordinary means to try and explain something when that is unnecessary. But now, as you mentioned, with the questions about consciousness, that's an interesting one because, yeah, we wouldn't necessarily connect human awareness with something apart from the brain, the mind, right? Now, there are some interesting studies that seem to show the potential for the consciousness to escape the body itself. But a fascinating area there for me is plants. We would never consider plants, you know, which actually don't have brains, right? Plants which are, apart from their ability to very gradually shift their position so that they can attract or collect more sunlight with their leaves, they're essentially immobile. And yet, if we look at the evolutionary history of plants, right, their preferential production of rewards in the form of fruit that they produce so that uh, animals, mammals, birds, you know, reptiles, what have you, that consume the fruits they, that they produce will help them to procreate. When we think about the way that they have evolved, I mean, it's incredible. If you look at like certain varieties of plant whose incredibly how – would, how would you term this? They produce a budding flower that is so perfectly harmonious with the anatomy of insect pollinators – but that makes perfect sense in terms of evolution because a lot of the, the, the better that something works out in terms of survival, the more likely it will be that that organism will survive. And therefore, over time, it finely tunes itself just naturally as a consequence of survival. I mean, that does make sense. It makes perfect sense, and we see exactly why it happens. But, I mean, that makes it no less mysterious to me. I mean, like, for instance— we think about carrion flowers, right? I raised this point recently on one of my podcasts. A flower that, unlike most plants with their successful strategy of, of attracting pollinators, having a beautiful bloom and a, and a wonderful fragrance, you know, some of them even produce pollen and then dummy pollen. The dummy pollen, which is explicitly a food, but the real pollen, which actually is dusted over the top of the insect, which thereby actually is procreative for the plant. I mean, that's fascinating in itself that they create dummy pollen, some plants, like the Brazil nut tree, for example, is one that does that. But carrion flowers, on the other hand, have this other bizarre strategy that they employ where they smell like rotting flesh and sometimes look like it. <laughs> right, yeah. The question I have is, now again, I'm anthropomorphizing this for the purpose of both humor and also to get us all thinking about it, but how does the plant know to smell like rotting flesh? How does it even know what rotting flesh smells like? It hasn't got a nose. It doesn't have to. So don't let me interrupt. You're going to make a point here. I think Go ahead. Again, yeah, it doesn't have to because what it's doing may not actually be replicating the scent of rotting flesh, but nonetheless, it effectively does that, and convincingly so even for humans who get close enough to smell the said carrion flower. I mean, these are incredibly mysterious phenomena to me, which again, an evolutionary biologist would say nothing mysterious at all. This is evolution, and these are adaptations over time that occur. I mean, these are well-understood processes, but I'm thinking to myself, guys, think about how incredibly successful, though, Plants have, over time, over a long time, talk about patience, they incredibly successfully employ these evolutionary strategies harmoniously with other kinds of organisms. Now, my question is, can we really say that those plants don't have some level of awareness? I don't really think that's a kooky idea. If you read Michael Pollan, and again, this is a burgeoning field, you know, plant neurobiology, 
Michael Pollan and others would actually argue that plants may be far more aware of what's happening around them than humans would ever expect. And increasingly over time, science seems to be supporting that kind of an idea. Oh, yeah, but then what do you mean by awareness? I mean, that, that can become a convenience term for an ability to detect and react, but not necessarily a synonym with consciousness. Right. Are so, you guys so, familiar with a book that came out a number of years ago, The Secret Life of Plants? Oh, yeah, I've got a copy right here. Tell our <laughs> listeners about this. This is fascinating. Well, yeah, let me see if I can actually reach it on my shelf. Where is my copy of it? Now I'm looking down at them. Uh, where is it? Well, I see Lyle Watson's Supernature down there, but we can we can go do a, a brief summary. Uh, the Secret Life of Plants. Now, there are some things in that book that, again, I find highly dubious, but it was a book, essentially one of the early ones uh, that – when was it published? Gene, probably the 1970s – that puts forward the idea that there are all these mysterious qualities about plants. And in fact, actually, Lyle Watson with Supernature and some of his other books, he also was uh, you know, a scientist who proposed similar ideas. Uh, one of the classic experiments that's discussed in The Secret Life of Plants had been Cleve Baxter and his studies – where he used a polygraph machine, and he was initially trying to basically see if if it would register on a polygraph when he held a flame next to the leaf of a plant. Or Before we plant. find out what happened when he held that flame, we're going to light up these announcements. That was the worst segue I've done yet, and I've done many bad ones. More to come with Micah, Gene, and Randall. You're in the purple. listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Right now, millions of Americans have an uneasy feeling about the future. That's why they're quietly stockpiling as much emergency food as they can. What about you? Do you have enough emergency food to get you through a prolonged crisis? If not, take a moment to shop My Patriot Supply. We're America's leader in emergency preparedness and survival. Since 2008, we've served several million American families like yours. In fact, our mission is your survival. So head on over to MyPatriotSupply.com and grab a few of our tasty emergency food kits. Our food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage and is shipped quickly and discreetly to your door. One day, you might be eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner while everyone else is standing in a food line. Avoid that. It's too late to act once the other shoe drops. It's time to be self-reliant and prepared. And now you can. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. 
MyPatriotSupply.com. The reviews for Extendivite are amazing. Amazon customer, it's amazing. I just ordered my second bottle. In one month, my blood pressure dropped significantly. I no longer get chest pain after I exercise. The reviews are spot on. My target is to get off of BP meds, and if it keeps going like this, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. Amazon customer, Extendivite works great. This product has made my blood pressure and cholesterol stable. I highly recommend it. Amazon customer, excellent herbal formula. I've been using it to keep my cardiovascular system fine-tuned. Extendivite is only $69.95 for a two-month supply. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-D-R-O-P.com. Extend your life with Extendivite. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who've helped people that have been injured or wronged. Have you been diagnosed with cancer? Are you one of the millions who have taken Zantac or other generic versions of this popular drug to help treat stomach issues? Then pay close attention to this message. The FDA said it detected low levels of a probable cancer-causing chemical known as NDMA in Zantac and other generic forms of this popular drug. They've banned sales and even removed it from the market. If you've been diagnosed with cancer and you've taken Zantac or a generic equivalent, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses covered. And there's no upfront cost to you. They only get paid if you win. So please call now. 800-998-7173. 800-998-7173. That's 800-998-7173. This is Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. I think he is becoming a resident of a little shop of horrors, J. Randall Murphy. And that's not what I was talking about, talking about the secret life of plants. In the secret life of plants, there's this polygraph experiment. You're going to tell us about Micah Hanks? Again, I have some reservations about this one. And as fascinated as I am with plants and their unique capabilities, which, again, maybe it is fair to argue evolutionarily they aren't that mysterious, but I find them really fascinating because they really cause us to have to rethink how we generally think of plants. You mean all that green stuff that grows in my yard? No, I mean, plants are organisms. They are alive. And that just, to me, is is really, truly incredible. But what you were going to do, though, is you were, I believe, get to the experiment where the plants seem to be able to sense danger. That was what was implied. And again, that's why I say fascinating, though, I think plants are. We've got to really be careful in terms of endorsing this idea. But now what was outlined by Cleve Baxter in the experiments, and this was a significant part of the book in question, Baxter had used polygraphs to, I think, try to measure, I believe he was trying to see if the polygraph would register the water being absorbed by the plant and if this would register. So anyway, as he goes over at one point, he's going to snip like one of the leaves off. This is all from memory, folks. And he says that the polygraph seemed to register a response from the plant as he approached it. And so he begins to conduct experiments where he's going to hold like a a lighter underneath a leaf to see if the plant will respond to a flame being held under one of its leaves, in many instances, and here's part of the problem with this study, 
the plant didn't appear to respond. But in some, he noticed that even just thinking about harming the plant seemed to elicit a response, which was measurable on the polygraph. Part of the problem, of course, that we see here is that it didn't seem like what he was observing and what he claimed might be a response being issued by the plant. It didn't seem to be entirely repeatable that the plant would, quote unquote, as he termed it, Cleve Baxter used to say that the plant would scream sometimes if it perceived that it was going to be injured. It very well may be that there was some sort of response being issued by the plant. Now, what's more interesting to me than the speculations that Cleve Baxter presented, which were outlined in the book that Gene mentioned, is that just a few years ago, there was a study that found that certain varieties of plant species, if, for instance, caterpillars or some other kind of an insect, different kinds of bugs, okay, that would eat plants, if they show up and they begin to actually snack on the plant's leaves, certain varieties of plants will produce a kind of gas that will be carried through the wind and that other plants, of course, can register. They can use this to detect, okay, well, there is a predator nearby. You know, there will be bugs in my vicinity soon that will actually consume my leaves, and this could also endanger me. And the plants in that area will respond by producing enzymes that cause their leaves to take on a bitter flavor for insects or, you know, caterpillars or whatever else that may actually be consuming said plant. That's totally interesting. And but again, I guess, you know, there's that assumption that the plants somehow know and therefore the alarm is set. The plant is thinking danger, Will Robinson. But really, I mean, it could be just simply a detection reaction chemistry type of thing where the plant has actually zero idea. Exactly. But that doesn't make it less fascinating. Like, have you ever seen those time lapse studies that they've done of plants? They've done some that are in jungles, do time lapse of the jungle. Basically, the plants go are at war with each other. It's right. really, really bizarre. Well, the plants definitely do move very slowly, and they definitely interact. And just one more point about the whole thing about, you know, gases be emitted by a plant to warn other plants nearby effectively. Again, even if it's just a sort of a response to their leaves being consumed, right? The point I'm making is that I wonder if something like that, which had not been known at the time that Cleve Baxter did his studies, could that have been what he was actually observing? But he interpreted that as being something like a consciousness. The plant was aware. You see what I'm saying? I think that it would have been that there was something that was far simpler, but which was unknown to him at the time, which might explain what he observed. And, of course, he was called a crackpot because he inherently anthropomorphized what he observed. Science may offer us a better explanation today, but yes, like you said, no less fascinating. And indeed, even though many of these mechanisms as time goes on are better understood today, it has come to pass that I think we've learned a lot of things about plants that we didn't know, some of which explain what were perceived as really anomalous things years ago. They are far less anomalous, but they are nonetheless interesting in terms of really how they broaden our understanding of how plants live. You could call it it behavior. Movement is a kind of behavior. Sure. You know, but but this is really interesting because we get people on who are very interested in consciousness. We have a major thread on the forum that delves into the whole concept of, of consciousness. And really, we could say the same thing about the brain. Well, it's all just chemicals reacting bioelectrical feedback resonance loops but that doesn't explain how we have any experience of it right if we weren't us and we didn't know that we have consciousness some alien out there might think that we're not really much different than the plants we just are these bioelectrical beings that go around 
following our instincts. We're not? Yeah. Well, I mean... You know, maybe that's what they're really interested in. Human beings seem to have this extra thing about them that is kind of unpredictable in terms of simple biological and electrochemical responses. Maybe they don't have the same kind of experience of the world as we do. Right. Michio Kaku and many others will frequently use the example of why would aliens necessarily pay attention to us, right? We think about how humans treat the nest of ants over there next to the sidewalk. They don't pay attention to a colony of ants. They aren't thinking of trying to go over there and communicate with them. In a lot of ways, plants might be an even better example of that because while we are aware of insects, especially if one you know bites us or if we have an infestation in our house, same with arachnids or anything else, we pay attention to those guys. But with plants, we often are completely oblivious to the plants all around us, the living organisms that are all around us. And I wonder, could a significantly more advanced intelligence, if they visited Earth and came here, could they view humans much like we view plants in the sense that they recognize we're alive, but they're like, yeah, but those guys aren't, you know, fill in the blank, whatever we would call conscious or what have you. They don't, for whatever reason, view humans as being even on their radar. I mean, yes, but there's a difference here, too. There is evidence of human technology all around us. So it's not just a bunch of creatures running around that we could accept or dismiss. And that would be the dilemma that E.T. would certainly face. Not just the fact that we are here, but we are doing things that are obvious. And since they evade us, we know they are aware of our presence. We can get into more of this in After the Powercast, Micah. But tell us now, for those who are very, very curious, as they should be, how do we find more of your stuff? Indeed. Yes, of course. My personal website is micahanks.com. You can find all my podcasts and things there. And of course, I also am the uh, co-founder and uh, one of the many contributors, along with my buddies, Tim McMillan and NJ Benias, who's been on the program in the past and talked about it. We, of course, co-founded The Debrief uh, last December. Uh, the Debrief, of course, features a lot of science and disruptive technology, but there's a fair amount of UFO reporting there, too, because it's a timely subject. So definitely check me out at micahanks.com and also the reporting that the team and I do there at thedebrief.org. And by the way, at The Debrief, they'll send you a newsletter with updates, so you will not forget to go back there and read some of their fascinating articles. You can find us on Twitter if you look for The Paracast. You can find us on Facebook if you look for two Paracast groups, fan clubs, whatever, but they're currently not allowing us to post our links to here. So they're really strange. I'm trying to get them to straighten it out and figure out what's going on to straighten up and fly right. We also offer branded merchandise at theparacast.shop, theparacast.shop, where we have the logo, the original logo for the Paracast, the caricature of me that frightens everybody that was done by Red Pill Junkie. We also have some original artwork from J. Randall Murphy. We have the T-shirts and all that good stuff at theparacast.shop. We also have the Paracast Plus where you get this show free of the network ads, better audio, and the After the Paracast podcast that often includes extra content from our special guests like it does this week with Micah Hanks. We also are offering for lifetime subscriptions a 20% discount. So when you check out at theparacast.plus, that's theparacast.plus, use the keyword or coupon code UFO20 
for an additional 20% discount on Lifetime Subs, theparacast.plus. Micah Hanks, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Always a pleasure, Gene. Featuring Gene Steinberg is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.